looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift day. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansopery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. Hi everyone, this is David Sanctious. You're listening to Crazy Train Radio.
Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this next guest, he is a world-renowned performing and recording artist. He was an original member of some guys from up the road here, from where I'm at, about 45 minutes, Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He's also toured and recorded with such musical greats such as Peter Gabriel, Sting, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Santana. That's just a short list of A-level musicians he has played and performed with. He also has written and produced groundbreaking progressive music with his band Tone, which is mixing rock, fusion, gospel, jazz. Nice little mixture there. His latest release, which I want to bring up, is Eyes Wide Open, which is his 10th album. It's off the charts. Let's welcome Dave Sancreus. Excuse me for mispronouncing with the cold. How are you this afternoon? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it's it's all right. You know, um, yeah, just another uh, another day here in, in the islands. Like I said, it's a bit rainy here today, but. Yeah, we were talking for a few minutes, folks, right before he we started recording. And David is living out in Hawaii. He is a Jersey boy, correct? You were in Asbury. You were in Asbury Park child yeah. as well, right? Yeah, I was actually I was born in Long Branch, and then we lived in Asbury Park until I was about uh, five, five and a half, six years old, and then we moved to Belmar, and then I grew up the rest of the time in in Belmar. All right, got to make the joke, and this is a local reference here that I'll go there. Is that the Belmar with one L or two L's? I believe that's the Belmar with two L's. So I southern New Jersey know. then? No. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of Belmars. Uh, mine is the Belmar that's eight miles away from Asbury Park. All right, yeah. so the singular L. Okay. And people will be Googling that now. What, what the hell are they talking about? But you were actually living in Hawaii now, which I heard you moved back in January 2020. So what island are you? Whereabouts are you? Say it again. Oh, I'm on the island of Kauai, and, which is a really small town. We're not, um, we're not like on the big island, like on uh, Oahu, where there's Honolulu and everything, cities. But Kauai is uh, it's one of the furthest out island. And it's like uh, I live out in the country. I don't live in a city or like a neighborhood or anything. And before this interview is over, you might hear a rooster in the background or a couple of chickens because we're near a couple of farms as well. And the roosters and chickens are like wild around here. So they just, you might hear it, might not. All good. So before we get into the music and the fun stuff, I'm curious to know what made you guys decide to go where you're at? Uh, I've been wanting to come here since the 90s. I have uh, a brother who's been living here for about 30 years. And um, ever since he moved here and uh, told me how, what a great time he was having of it and how it worked for him. And then I came here on a tour with Sting, I think, in uh, the early 90s. We had uh, we were doing a long tour and, and uh, as a kind of gift to us, because it was such a long tour, and we ended up 
in Japan, Sting lost his voice and we had to cancel about like four shows. So we had to stay there in, in, in the country. We did one show in Japan and then as a gift <laughs> from the management to get us back home, we went to Hawaii and did a show there, one show, and then returned home to New York where everybody went. But when that plane door opened in Hawaii, I think we were on, um, I think we're on the big island, but it was just the way it was. It was a moment, like the plane door opened and that Hawaiian air hit me and the sunshine and everything. And I just thought, this is, this is awesome. You know, like I could really enjoy being here a lot, you know? So now I'm, we're here, this is the beginning of my third year um, in Hawaii coming up in a few weeks. And my other brother, <clears throat> this was really ironic. We actually, we looked all over at different places on the island for um, a house, my wife and I. And the place we finally found, which was one of the last places we looked at, it's about five minutes from my brother's house, which is really nice because we get to see each other whenever we want to and hang out and do stuff. He's been helping me on my, uh, he helped me do my videos that I did for Eyes Wide Open. We did three videos for that. And he helped me shoot some scenes um, here in Kauai for those. So um, yeah, it's been good. I'm enjoying it. I think year three is going to be uh, even better. Exactly. Because, you know, unfortunately, everybody's been dealing with COVID and stuff. And little side note, I have heard some, <laughs> some of the animals as you were talking there. So I heard some chirping of uh, the chickens oh, yeah. and such. So oh, yeah. you were yeah. right. But uh is your brother like a photographer or something, or was it just one of those, hey, hey, uh, I need your help on this? <laughs> no, he's a professional uh, award-winning photographer, actually. He's, he's won awards for his photography over the years, so he's that's what he does. For well, what's your brother's name in case people want to check out some of his work? His brother's name, my brother's name is Ed. Ed's Sanctious, same last name as me. Um, but Eddie uh, helped me do some scenes here, and who really puts it together in my videos is my partner back in Woodstock, Craig McCord. And um, he and his wife, Stacy have a company called Slow Films and they do videos and industrials and all kinds of different stuff. So we sort of shoot scenes, send it back to Craig. He puts it all together and does his magic and boom. Well, so. let's jump into the music a little bit there, but I want to start with, like I said, eyes wide open. You mentioned it there with doing some video and such with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's eight energetic compositions on there four vocal four instrumental right but with this particular album compilation whatever folks want to call it right. you tend to interspread a political commentary and news breaks and right. some of the stuff that's been going on real life into a musical and visual landscape with everything that's been going on the past couple of years is was it the stuff that's been going on the past couple of years that everybody's been seeing on the news that inspired it or was it you had the music and it just coincided with what's been going on no it's it's more like the other way because you know what's been going on quotation marks has been going on for a long time yeah you know there's nothing new in terms of like uh police violence or, or people being shot, you know, by the cops, or um, the kind of racial uh, strife in colleges, the kind of um, upset and turmoil that migrants go through because, oh, guess what? I can't farm here anymore because it's underwater or because it's a war zone, 
So people are forced to move from where they would like to be and where they once had lives by all sorts of conditions. You know, the climate change conditions, like I said, war, um, all, all, all kinds of stuff. So all that's been going on for a while. I think it's, it's just escalated in the minds of some people. But I definitely, you know, I, I uh, for instance, the song uh, Urban Song, uh, one of the four vocal songs, I started writing that song back in the early 90s after the Rodney King uh, police beating. That was, that was 91, right? Somewhere back in there, yeah, early 90s. Um, so that's that song, the idea to write that song has been around. What happens is that I, I do this thing where whenever I, um, whenever I tour, especially when I'm home, when I come home from touring, I just start recording. I'll call up, um, I'll get well, my friends, but I'll, I'll, I'll call a certain musician or musicians and, and get them to the house and um, we'll record stuff. And then I'll record as much as I can while I'm home. And then I might go away again and do something, but I always return to it, you know? And I tried that song particularly. I knew it was gonna come out in some form someday, but it really took me a minute to be satisfied with it um, sonically, you know? Mm -hmm. So that song is, it's, it's the basic tracks are the same as Michael Bland on drums, uh, who was in Prince's band. Excuse me, the track is basically Michael Bland and myself. I did the keyboards, vocals, and, and everything. But when I started really finishing this record, uh, it was the, the um, Trump selection, which really put a fire on you. We can go, you know, so many different directions with that. Yeah, but you say it, you better, you know, say it. So that really put a fire on them, and I finished, but. Say so the basic track for that is from 91, let's say drums and uh, most of the keyboard parts. But I took a really hard look at it and I rearranged it. I, I heard on uh, YouTube about the strife that was going on in colleges, about the sort of racial hatred that uh, kids were coming under. And I found some audio from it. Um, and like you're saying, I was able to just intersperse that in an interesting way with the song. And that made it mean something more. I sort of nailed home, like, what this, what's the song really about? You know, it sort of gives it a preface. And then uh, I got to the end of the song and I extended it a little bit. I just made it a bit longer with a whole other new organ part. Uh, I redid the organ solo, completely brand new organ solo, and I re-sang the vocals. I had an original vocal track on there with some backing vocals, but I redid all the vocal parts and really brought it up to sort of a current kind of arrangement, you know, that, that I was really happy with finally. So, uh, and in contrast to that, the song uh, In the Middle of the Night, that's absolutely brand new. I just, that was from, I'm gonna say February of 2019. It was one of the last things I did in my studio in Woodstock. I had a really large uh, studio <clears throat> in Woodstock, upstate New York. But that was a fresh thing. That wasn't like a, an old track that I'd been, um, you know, trying to finish. And it just, it, the song poured out of me one morning. And it's a true story. I was very upset about uh, finances at the time. And uh, the lyrics and everything, it just came. It just like poured out of me. It was crazy. So, you know, sometimes it's brand new stuff and fresh inspiration. Uh, and sometimes it's something that uh, I might have had around for a while and just finally figured out how to 
how to really finish it in a good way. Well, with that being said, I like to ask all musicians that are singers, songwriters, or, you know, whatever the case may be, but do a lot of writing themselves. Right. When does, for you at least, you feel comfortable in releasing the music? Because I know you grind hard when an idea comes, right. trying to put everything <clears throat> down to paper and recording it. And, you know, you go through the process, but yet, you can drive yourself nuts in a circular fashion. Well, maybe if I change these notes, well, you know, what? I don't like that lyric carry. You know what I'm saying? You, you could drive yourself mad. You can, but there's a, there's a time and a place in the process, in the creative process, there's a time and a place for all that stuff. I'll, I'll change this note here. I'll change this chord or I'll change this lyric. There is definitely a time and a place for that. And that's part of the process. And I think if you don't go through that part of the process, you, you're sort of not, uh, doing yourself any justice. But at the same time, there's a point when you have to stop that. You, and it's just something inside you. You know when you've sort of hit it. You know when you've got exactly the right chord. It may have been the one that you changed. Maybe that was it. Well, you know when you've got um, the right set of lyrics, you know? You just know it. It just, it comes to you, feel it, you know, that's it. And once that's it, you move on, you know? Because I, I know people who work like that. And some people can, I'm going to say, especially keyboard players these days with the, the, the discovery, the invention rather of MIDI technology and all this kind of perfect time situations you can have with drum machines and MIDI and sequencers and stuff. You can really go down a rabbit hole of ideas and come out with not much, you know, um, come out only realizing that you've gone too far. You know? And as a right. Jersey boy, I like to say it's a gut feeling when it's yeah. right, it's right. That's exactly, that's it for everybody. Yeah, it's really a gut feeling if you're from Jersey or, or, or not. But you just, you know it and you feel it because it kind of like, it makes you feel really good. It's just like someone turned the light on. Power, you change your rhythm just a little bit and go, oh, that's it, exactly. And Motel 6, we're not paying you royalties for that uh, stealing of the line. We're turning the light on for you. Uh, <laughs> You know, with the other thing that we, the seriousness of stuff and that you try to incorporate with the music and stuff that we were hitting at earlier. Yeah. And this is not musical related, but I'm curious to know because I was a history guy. Mm -hmm. And it seems like when you go through the ebbs and flows of things that, like you said, some stuff hasn't been happening overnight. How do I put this? It seems like things are getting better. Then we take three steps back, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like in recent times, it's like, I thought we'd been past, you know, X, Y, and Z, but yet we're retreading. Yeah. You know, Bruce Scott has, has a song about that. One step forward, two steps back. You know, that's a great yes. song. But yeah, that's a, that's an old expression. And it, it seems to be something that plays out um in our social life. It seems to be like that. It's just like we make some progress and then here we go, we back up and we're dealing with things that we thought we had moved beyond, you know, certainly. I'm really, I'm really, um, I'm disappointed almost to the point of where I can't watch like domestic uh, American politics. It's so heartbreaking to see between, between the hateful, um, you know, mentality of, of a lot of Congress people and senators on the on the Republican side. I mean, you got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. What the fuck, man? Where did she come from? <laughs> it's 
that, what is that all about? You know, there's, and there's a lot of that. And people seem to have, they seem to be more brazen with their hatred now. Like they just don't care how, how what anyone's going to say about them or think about them because they have enough hateful, like-minded bodies, some of them sitting right next to each other in Congress. These people are, are, are really shameful. And it's like the worst of us. And it's, it's blogging, it's clogging everything up. Nothing can get done because of this one guy from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who's mm -hmm. deep in the pockets of, of, uh, of uh, big corporations and, and industry, you know, to hold up something that would be very, very good for a lot of people, you know, because of his, you know, his nonsense. It's, it's hard to watch. It's really hard to watch us not make progress on things that are important. You know? Yeah. And not to dive down this rabbit hole, but on that point, some of the things that's been going on, I thought, yeah, roads and bridges that work and, you know, the basics that we have in our society wasn't a political thing. Well, yeah, it's not supposed to be, you know, but you can, uh, people can make it that apparently, you know, they're too happy to make it that. And that's, uh, it's sad. Yeah. The thing is, they don't, they don't have, they're more willing to stop something good from happening for someone else, but they don't have a better idea. They don't have any ideas. They don't have any helpful, constructive ideas for society. They just want to be a block onto whatever the, the Democratic side wants to do or anything that will help people of color or anything that's going to uh, increase um, uh, equality on, on any level, whether it's political, financial, whatever. Uh, they're just dead set against that, you know, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. And we can spend five hours, 10 hours talking about all that stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah. But back to the musical stuff. And obviously, like I mentioned in the introduction, your big claim or your first big claim was playing with Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Plant. And we know everything, like I said, everything we see on the internet, I know is true. <laughs> yeah, right. I appreciate that. But were you actually living on E Street, and that's where the band got its name at one point? Absolutely, yeah, 1105 E Street. I lived at uh, 1105 E Street from the time I was what, five and a half, uh, the summer of my fifth year, I remember that. So from the time I was, uh, say, five in the summertime until uh, I dropped out of school when I was 15. I'd say till I was like 18 or so, but that's, that's where I grew up, in Belmar, on E Street. And my mom used to occasionally let us rehearse there. We used to have a hard time finding places to rehearse, you know? Uh, there was a surfboard shop in, uh, in Atlantic Heights we used to rehearse at. And uh, we used to move around a bit till we finally found a more stable place. Um, but yes, yeah, that's where I grew up. So when did you first come across Mr. Springsteen, when did you first meet him and connect with him? I first met him at uh, a jam session at the Upstage Club in Asbury Park. It was summertime. I don't remember the year, but it was summertime because I remember I walked all the way from Belmar to uh, Asbury Park. It was about eight miles. And um, I did that because I wanted to get to know what was going on in Upstage. I didn't really know anyone there. And uh, I wanted to, you know, see the scene. I wanted to play music with, uh, with other people. So I'm walking there this one night and I get in and uh, the place had a weird uh, time schedule. It had to, 
Let's see, let me get it right. I think they used to open from nine o'clock till midnight and it was a two level place. So the downstairs level was a coffee house and folk music. And then they would close and then open up. They closed for an hour and then open up again from midnight to five in the morning. And uh, I'm walking in and they're organizing the jam session for the, for the second part of the evening. And uh, Gary Talent was there. He's standing at the top of the steps next to Bruce. And I'd met Gary um, a couple of weeks before at a recording session for someone else. And um, so I'm walking up the steps and then Gary sees me and he goes, Gary introduces me to Bruce. And uh, Bruce goes, hey, nice to meet you. We're organizing this uh, uh, jam session for the next uh, bit. Do you want to sit in? I said, absolutely. And that was it. That was it. So the night that we actually met was the first time we played together, actually. Nice. And did you feel a chemistry, would you say, with him? Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to say. You, you feel chemistry with Bruce uh, largely because... Largely because the... Um, it's just the person that he is. There's a there's a kind of I don't want to be like romantic about it, but he has a he has a, a definite has a definite energy. There's a definite energy and a real presence, especially uh, when he's on stage and dealing with music and musicians. You know, I thought it was very impressive the way that he he organized the whole session and he just made it flow. You know, people were coming up and going down. So maybe another. Uh, drummer would come up and play for a while or whatever. Uh, but it's just the, the, uh, the presence that he had, uh, has on stage is, is impressive. So you, you feel that right away. And then personally, you know, once we got to spend some time and, and talk and get to know each other, yeah, absolutely. He's a, he's a sweetheart. He's a really and cool. you bring up the word presence and it's funny that you say that because especially being a Northeast guy myself, Right. And obviously I grew, I was born the year born in the USA came out. Uh -huh. So that shows my age. Right. So long story short, I happened to be in New York city. Uh, I'm guessing 2019 ish, late 2019 ish. And I left Barnes and Noble and happened to get a copy of born to run his book that he wrote. And so anyway, I got lost and ended up, over in Times Square and Broadway area and who happens to be performing at the one man show mm. where I was at Bruce and you could see people gathering around the side door. Well, who happens to pull up, but the man himself to go do his show that night right. and talk as a fan standpoint, a music fan. It was like, you felt that or like you couldn't get any higher. I don't think as, as far as, from a fan perspective, it was like, right. I was like, yeah, luckily, you know, and I marked that a little bit, Hey, you know, weighed the book up, signed it. Yeah. It was cool. So it ended up being a good, you know, like perfect timing, sapatico kind of deal. Yeah. That happens sometimes. Yeah. But it was like that, or just from, like I said, from a fan perspective to see him was just unbelievable. Right. Yeah. I was like, and I, of course I've had family who's seen you guys and, concert no i haven't i'm the only one who hasn't seen the show live yet but i have i think i trumped them i said yeah well i met bruce so <laughs> <laughs> no but uh back the 
getting together and you know getting that chemistry and such together mm-hmm. were you on stage that night in 71 at the student prince when you met the big man yeah yeah i was around i was around people ask me this question uh did the wind did the doors really blow off that's the story yeah <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember the door. It well could have blown off, but uh, I was I was definitely there. <laughs> and and do, you, do you think it was the same thing that you had, you guys had, that when the big man comes in and you guys, another yeah, piece of that puzzle? It's the same thing. You know, Clarence uh, was such a, again, such a presence. He was physically a big man, you know, hence Not the yet. nickname. He was, a, he was a large human being. And, uh, uh, so his physical stature was one thing, but I mean, his presence on the instrument. And when he started playing saxophone, that was the thing that we didn't, that was a really new element in the band and a sound. It just really took everything up a couple of notches, you know, it was unique. And there wasn't also, I mean, there weren't that many like fabulous, fabulous musicians in the Jersey Shore. There are a lot of people trying to get good and wanting to be good, but at the, the level of musicianship was was not, um, you know, it wasn't like there were like dozens of excellent players. There were people who could play a little bit, people who could play a little bit more, and then you'd have a couple of standout people on an instrument. You had one guy who played drums better than everybody else, you know, like Ernest Carter did, uh, you know, like Gary was the best bass player around, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, Clarence made a, an immediate impression um, through his own personal charisma and his his uh, his playing. Definitely. And you say that about the saxophone as far as bands having that. And back in that, um, in that day, yeah, the only one I can think of that may have been, and I might be off a year or two here, but the that would have had a saxophone presence that I could think of would be Chicago. Am I wrong on that? No, you're not wrong on that, but that's quite a different style of music. What Chicago was doing was a bit more, uh, well, in a, in a way, because they had a horn section. They had, that's not just one saxophone player. So they were doing a little bit more sophisticated arrangements, uh, horn-wise, you know. But uh, no, the way that Clarence fit in is was more of, of a, uh, a traditional R&B situation, whereas Chicago was... They're very fantastic players and it's great music. That's one of my, you know, favorite bands of the time too. But we were more like an expansion of a more traditional um, role of the saxophone in, a, in an R&B kind of, you know, rock situation. I saw a show via YouTube and I don't, I'm guessing it would have been before COVID hit and all. And obviously the big man had passed. But have you ever had a chance to hear his nephew play? Yes. Yeah, uh, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly have. Uh, I heard him. Well, I, I heard him up close and personal uh, uh, the night that um, E Street Band got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in twenty was it twenty fourteen or something. So we, we performed at that as, you know, East Bruce, of course, and then the East Street Band. And then I was getting inducted as a member of the East Street Band. But on the same night, Peter Gabriel got inducted into Hall of Fame. So I was performing with the East Street Bands, which involved like some rehearsals on that day. And of course, you know, Jesse was there, played great. 
And then I had to rehearse uh, with Peter Gabriel for another performance the same night in another room somewhere. And uh, that was great. That just made that night really special to me. That Peter, who I uh, had worked with for so many years, I've been working with him since the So album in uh, 1980 something, 86 or something, that he got inducted on the same night that I got inducted as a member of the E Street Band. I, it was musically it was like double duty in one night. It would have been enough to just play with either of those bands in one night. It would have been a fabulous night, but having to do both in one night was really special and uh, it was good. And that's what I was going to ask there because you're going two different styles of music within rock, but it's yeah. like, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, you know, X, Y, Z with the E street band, but then I got to go over in here and we're going to do this for, you know, Peter. So mm-hmm. how we, on a special night, not only is it a special night, like you said, for yourself to be inducted, but how were you able to keep yourself focused to be able to, you know, keep everything together there? Um, well, it wasn't that hard, mainly because we didn't have that much songs. Like for Bruce's set, we just played, uh, what's it? Not Kitty's Back. Dang it. Um, East Street Shuffle, we played that. We think we did three songs. Uh, East Street Shuffle and maybe Kitty's Back or something. I can't, I can't remember now. And, uh, and something else. So there's a limited amount of songs to learn. It's not like you've got to learn the whole set and perform it that night. <clears throat> Excuse me, the same thing with Peter Gabriel. We played uh, Digging in the Dirt and I think Sledgehammer and, and something else. So it is doable. And because I've done a lot of both things, you know, it, it comes to you quickly, luckily. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, Obviously, I heard uh, Steve Miller talk about it in a eh, so-so kind of way when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So how was your experience when they called you? Were family able to come? Was yours a positive experience? Very, very positive. Um, My brother was there. Uh, My brother that lives five minutes from me was there at the time that night. It was really special. Uh, yeah, what, what can I say? It was just, it's an honor, first of all. Um, but I don't consider it like a ho-hum kind of, you know, next award kind of thing. I think it's really amazing that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a part of that. Uh, the only thing I regret that I didn't do that night, you, you, you each get a little chance to make an acceptance speech and say, thank you, you want to thank. And I thank my family for inspiring me, um, for you know supporting me. Uh, and the one person who I really wanted to thank a lot and I made it especially was there was my attorney, my lawyer, Gary Baker. And uh, I, because I improvised a speech, I relied too much on my musical skills. I didn't have anything on a little piece of paper. You know, I didn't have a written out speech. I just had some sort of points and I forgot to mention him. Uh, in my uh, in my acceptance speech, I, I apologized to him later, and he's like, "You don't have to do that. You know, it's not why we're doing it." But that's the one thing I wish I would have done that I, I didn't get to do. But it was a very long night, uh, a lot of musicians roaming around. I mean, I saw Cheryl Crow and I were going in opposite directions. She's going somewhere to change. I'm going the other direction. We stop and chat for uh, a little bit because. Um, 
She, Cheryl Crow and Sting did some shows together. We, I think we did about maybe three or four shows together. So uh, it was just an amazing night. A lot of musicians. Um, I didn't get back to the hotel until like four in the morning and the sun was beginning to come up. And uh, I don't even think I slept in the hotel. I think I had a car picking me up to take me back to Woodstock. And uh, my wife and I just stayed up at an early breakfast, hung out with some friends who were there. It was an amazing night, you know. It's not, it's not the kind of night that's going to happen like over and over again in your life. I can't think of another occasion like, like that, that something like that might, might happen. But, so you're definitely going to soak it up, that's for sure. You, yes. know, it's, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Cheryl Croder, and she did a tour with a friend of mine who's a professional musician in the country field and he says he fawns respectfully over Cheryl Crow. He says, you know, she she's just unbelievable. Probably one of the best musicians he's ever dealt with. She's really, really good. Really good. She's excellent. But you know, we talked about your family and such a little bit. Yeah. Were your parents good for you getting into music or kind of like what what in the hell's wrong with you? You know, Go to school and get a real job, David. <laughs> well, uh, a bit of both. They were very encouraging. <clears throat> I think my, both my parents recognized my talent um, early on. Uh, so they were very encouraging about me, about the talent and, you know, doing something with it. But they, like most parents, you know, I remember my mom used to say, well, that's good. You want to do music, but you should have something to fall back on, like another kind of job or something and my whole thing was like first of all i'm not falling back you know i'm serious about this and if i fall at all i'm going to be falling forward you know and i'll get up and carry on you know i, I had no i didn't have any fear about failing at it you know my, my whole thing was just like well because you don't know what's going to happen you know it's not laid out for you uh What's your next job gonna be? Who's gonna call you? Who are you gonna meet? What's gonna happen? That's just a big mystery. And you just have to wake up and, and live it, you know? So once they saw that I was in fact super serious and uh, I wasn't gonna be doing anything else, um, they're completely behind me, 100%, you know? But, and they got to see, luckily, they got to see a good, before both my parents passed away years ago. But before that happened, they each got to see uh, my success. They got to see me play with um, some of the people you named, you know, in the front. Um, I remember my father, after the Soul album came out, we played at, um, what's that place? Uh, up in the Meadowlands. Um, uh, they used yeah. to call it something else. The uh, big arena. MetLife? Yeah, it's MetLife. You know, who know who bought it now? But yeah, they used to call it the Meadowlands. And it was yeah. a big arena. Continental so, Airlines, was that it? Say it again. Continental Airlines. Is that it? No, I think it's even before them. <laughs> okay. going that way, so. um, but uh, that was the, that was our show in New Jersey. I think we played Madison Square Garden in New York City, and then we played the Meadowlands uh, in New Jersey. And uh, I got my father to come to that. My father and one of his best friends who used to let me hang out with them on the weekends and, and, uh, and listen to records. They were both uh, jazz fans. And... Uh, one of my dad's things on the weekends, like he liked to listen to music, you know, like uh, just around around the house. And uh, they used to let me hang out with them. And uh, they both saw the, the original Soul Tour. 
my mom got to see me play in Carnegie Hall with Sting for one of the first, uh, he used to do this event called the Rainforest. Uh, they were uh, earning money for um, the Rainforest Foundation in Brazil to help that. And uh, so she saw me in Carnegie Hall in a tuxedo, uh, standing next to Sting. We started the show actually, I don't remember the year, again, early 90s, 92 or something. And we started the show. We can, we played uh, someone to watch over me and the two of us stroll out in tuxedos and I sit down at the piano and this thing is like standing next to me. And I look up in the balcony and there's my mom. She had like prime seat. She could see me really clearly and a, a lot of stuff like that. So they got to see me like in the, in the upper echelon say of, of the kind of work that I do and uh, see it working. So they were very happy about that. Well, I know a big hero for you, or from at least what I heard, was Jack Bruce from Cream. And when you had an opportunity to play with them, that was a really big deal for you in the early 80s. Yes, it was. It was a big deal. Cream was one of my favorite bands uh, back in the day. And when I started learning to play guitar, I used to listen to a lot of that music and, and try and, and just try and copy it, literally, you know. <laughs> so, well, that's the way that you learn, actually. That's the way that Indian classical music is taught. Like you find a great sitar player, say, a real master, and then you sit next to him or you face him, and the master will play a riff, will play a melody or something. And then what you have to do is copy it exactly not kind of copy it, but nuance for nuance, inflection for inflection, you have to do that. And then once you start doing that, then it, that expands, you get longer and longer pieces to move. And eventually you find yourself keeping up with your teacher. Then with the minute that happens, you're, it's another dimension of, it's another level of progress for you as a guitarist, as a pianist, whatever you're, you're going for. So I used to listen to that Cream music a lot. Cream, Hendrix, and Jeff Beck were my favorite, um, you know, guitar kind of music. And um, it's funny that I, I got to work with all three of them, actually. I got to work with Jeff a bit, uh, many years after working with Jack. Uh, the Jack Bruce band had uh, Billy Cobham in it, uh, Clem Clemson and myself. I think we did one studio album and a tour of America and a tour of Europe. And then that's when it ended. And then after that, I got a call from Jack saying he wanted to just tour Europe, but as a trio. And he wanted to do some cream music and music from uh, his solo albums. So some of the set, Jack would be playing acoustic piano and singing, which he did, he's an amazing singer. And I would be playing synthesizer and I would play the bass with my left hand. I had a synthesizer bass sound. So I'm playing bass with my left hand and any other keyboard sound with my right hand on a synthesizer. And uh, Bruce Gary from The Knack was the drummer. <laughs> since passed away a, a while ago. Uh, and we did, um, we did some touring like that for a while. It was, it was fun working with Jack. Well, two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. First being, <clears throat> yeah, You've been very fortunate. You've, like you said, you've toured the war. You've been to Japan. You've done Europe, all over the states, and the whole thing. Is there a particular area that you've really enjoyed playing in and got to visit? Uh, I love Italy. 
Italy. And I can speak a bit of Italian as well. I worked in Italy for a lot of years with this singer named Zucchero, who you may not have ever heard of, but he's very, very popular in, uh, in Italy and, and uh, most of Europe. He's kind of like Italy's Joe Cocker. He has that kind of voice, you know, but he's written a bunch of songs. He's had many, many hit singles since since the 80s. I, the first time I worked with him was a, in a recording session in San Francisco in the 80s. And uh, just carried on like that. I think I've done about three or four of his albums and toured with him in Europe a few times. But uh, because of all that working with him, I got to spend a lot of time in Italy. And uh, I really enjoy the language. It's a beautiful place. There's the finest food in the world. Um, and they just, uh, I like the place because it's the culture. They really appreciate beauty, beautiful music, beautiful women, beautiful clothes, <laughs> you know, art, architecture, everything. It's just, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a nice place. I like to spend time there. And it's not my drink of choice, but I heard they're very eclectic with, uh, or their wine. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, so, a lot to choose from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My final question for you, and you mentioned about doing the synthesizer and stuff, and David is multi-talented because he plays the guitar, like you said earlier, and the piano and keyboard, and he's a man of many hats. But what do you think? Because obviously you kind of hinted at it earlier, but what do you think of the technology and evolution of it, whether it be from the recording process or the instruments and just overall since your time in the music business began? Oof, it's a, it's a gulf. They say from the 70s, I got started in the mid 70s uh, when I left. Uh, well, continue the time when I was in the E Street Band. The development of the keyboards itself has, has just been unbelievable uh, how, how much it's advanced in the quality and the possibilities of the instruments, the electric instruments these days. So on the technology side of that and also recording, I mean, we now have access to devices to where, you know, on a, on a laptop computer, you can do a professional recording if you have the right equipment. If you have the right software, the right microphones, you can do all kinds of stuff without having to go into a big studio or having to cough up a lot of money. It's incredible that way. And I've benefited that way. The, the part about that I'm, I'm not crazy about technologically is the misuse of the internet and the fact that once anything is digitized, it's basically free. I don't like the fact that like someone can buy my, my music and then without permission or knowing to stop them to post it on the internet to where it is instantly free for everyone. It undercuts, if you're trying to make CDs and sell them so that you can make a living, pay your bills, eat food, do everything you have to do financially, especially if you're not doing concerts. So nobody's doing any concerts now. You know, everybody, everything's shutting up. So I don't like the fact that uh, of what goes on, on in, in the internet in terms of intellectual property theft. I really, really don't like that, how someone can um, just take your stuff and, and undercut you. Uh, I don't like that at all. I'm going to figure out a way to sort of my next uh, record, which I'm already working on. I'm going to find a way to release it, which kind of doesn't do that. I might just release like one single every 
two months or something. I don't know. I don't, I don't want everything up there right away for someone to just buy it and think they're doing, I don't know what they think they're doing. They're not doing me a favor. If they're a fan of mine, anyone who does that, that's not, you're not helping me. You know, if you bought the CD, then fine, you enjoy the CD. Don't just throw it up in the big, you know, atmosphere so that anyone can just have it. Because, you know, musicians, we live by being paid for what we do musically, whether it's a recording session, a live concert, a CD that you created and sold, you know. So I, I don't care for that part of it. But the freedom and the ability that I've got now that we have as musicians using um, modern technology, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's pretty great. Yeah, and that's another area we can jump on for three hours, but I wouldn't do that to you. But uh, yeah. as far as the technology, and I think that all started with back in when I was in high school with Napster and the music getting out there. Oh, and- that, was that was terrible. Napster sucks mightily. That was that was the uh, tip of the iceberg. But yeah, that was a terrible time. For- yeah, when that. That whole concept and philosophy is, let me just put it on the internet and people have access to it. Yeah, it's probably the biggest change from everybody I talk to the, within the music uh, field, that's for sure. Right. But on that note, <laughs> it, I am going to put links to find your stuff to purchase and all that stuff and Great. when they can catch up with you. And David, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Aloha, sir. Thank you. Aloha. You can go to um, my website, davidsanchez.com, and you'll see links and everything there to videos and to, uh, we have vinyl available, CDs, some posters, the project. So you can see all that stuff will, will be on my website, uh, davidsanchez.com. Well, we will put a link to that in all variable outlets of this conversation. David, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Take care of yourself. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hey you guys, this is Alec Moline and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio.